Well, uh, a lot of Deuteronomy, as we've uh, gone through it, sounded pretty strange and weird, hasn't it? Uh, but I suspect uh, as you were listening to Deuteronomy 22, your reaction was probably a bit more mixed. Admiration and revulsion. Welcome and rejection. Uh, what seems like in the second part, verses 13 to 30, a prudish, possessive, oppressive to women's sexual morality that makes us squirm even to listen to. And yet we can also recognise, say, at the beginning, verses 1 to 12, an insistence on being good neighbours that we can easily understand and apply. A strange chapter, perhaps. Yet all of Deuteronomy 22 has the same purpose, to teach the people of Israel how to live as the Lord's holy people, a people who are his because of his saving grace, a people who are a people because the Lord is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, who's been forgiving and patient with Israel. Israel are a people whose lives are now meant to conform to the Lord's character of righteousness, justice and steadfast love. And as we think about what it meant for Israel to be the holy people of the Lord in the second millennium BC in the agricultural society of ancient Israel, we can also learn what it actually means for believers in Jesus, those saved by his grace to be the Lord's holy people in our modern urban society, to be that people of his very own, a, a people who no longer relate to the living God on the basis of keeping the law as law, who are no longer under the covenant the Lord had made with Israel at Sinai, which is now being renewed on the plains of Moab, but who through the Spirit have God's law written on their hearts, who have been given new hearts that are called to love God and love our neighbours, and who have seen this law fulfilled in the ministry, teaching and life of the Lord Jesus. So this strange word, this word that might immediately uh, make us very uncomfortable, is actually a word for us, a word that can teach us about trusting Jesus and a word that can teach us how to live for Jesus. So let's ask the Lord now to do that work in our lives as we listen to his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you tell us that all your word is given for our encouragement and that through it we can come to trust Jesus as Saviour and that by its teaching, rebuke, correction and training we can be equipped to live as your people to do the good deeds you call us to. We pray in your mercy uh, we would know the good work of your word in our lives tonight, that you would help me to teach it truthfully and clearly, and you would help us all to understand it and to change our thinking and practice, to conform to its truth, so the Lord Jesus would be honoured amongst us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a reminder uh, that Deuteronomy 22 is... We have a 
Ah, oh, very good. Thanks. I'll just do this, Cameron. Thanks. Yeah. A reminder that uh, Deuteronomy 22 is addressed to Israel as the Lord's holy people is actually found at the boundary between these two sections, at the centre of that of this passage. Uh, this little bit, uh, again, that might seem very strange to us who wear clothes made up of all kinds of mixtures of material. You know, you shall not sow your, seed, your vineyard with two kinds of seeds, shall not plough with an ox and a donkey, shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels for yourself on the four corners of your garment. And I don't see many tassels here tonight, right? But... Uh, this is actually a call for Israel to live as the holy people of God. So Israel had been introduced to these big categories of clean and unclean, say in the relationship to the in relation to the animals they could eat and other aspects of everyday life in Leviticus. And they were to maintain those distinctions as the Lord's holy people. And that need to maintain distinct categories and not intermingle what is distinct was to reach into, well, their everyday life, into their agricultural practices and what they wore. And they'd already been taught that in Leviticus chapter 19, which is a book all about holiness. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall, uh, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And so as Israel are about to enter the promised land, this instruction is being repeated with further specification. Uh, wool and linen are specifically said not to be intermingled as they were in the priestly garments. So this was something that would distinguish the priestly garments from everyday life. And an ox, a clean animal, was not to be yoked with a donkey, an unclean animal. And the point is that in the land, Israel are to keep on living as the Lord's holy people. And that this holiness, this separation to the Lord, was to find visible daily expression. And that was so that they could be distinct from the peoples around about, but also always be reminded that they belonged to the Lord. And the tassels on their garments had been introduced way back in Numbers 15. Uh, and that was also to remind them that they were the Lord's holy people who were to live by his commands and so keep on being his holy people. So verse 38, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. And so these tassels were a memory aid and their holiness, their separation to God from all the surrounding nation was to be seen in obedience to his commands. Now this may need to maintain distinctiveness by not confusing what is distinct also underlies the instruction of verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Women are not to wear men's garments, or, nor men women's. Now we could debate how this should be expressed in today's fashions. 
And we all have to recognise that there's a fair degree of arbitrariness in deciding what is women's and men's clothing. As one commentator has observed, in all the discussion, even by the most conservative commentators, no one, for example, has ever condemned the wearing of kilts by men, which is, of course, very good if you're Presbyterian. Uh, but the point, right, the point is there is to be no deliberate confusion, no deliberate crossing over the boundaries between men and women. Truthfulness, men and women being seen to be men and women, facilitates relationships that are based on reality and not on deceit. And society needs that clarity to facilitate those relationships. And let me say your children, if and when you have them, need that clarity as they grow up. So don't dress boys as girls or girls as boys. And as this is a more fundamental distinction that's involved in nearly all social interaction in a society, and as there's some evidence that some forms of pagan worship involve transvestitism, that is, men dressing as women and vice versa, transgressing this command is more severely condemned. An abomination, it says, to the Lord. And this need to maintain distinctiveness in appearance is actually endorsed in the New Testament's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 about how men and women should dress as they participate in congregational life. Maintaining the distinction between men and women, not confusion or the obliteration of real differences, helps us actually relate to each other and it honours the God who made us distinct, who made us male and female. So these rules about what they sowed, what they wore, how they used their livestock, these rules are a reminder to Israel that their relationship to the Lord, where he had separated them to himself, that is, he had made them holy, so they lived different lives from their neighbours who did not know the Lord, this holiness was to find visible expression in daily life. It was to be seen. But it's not just to be seen in the distinction between clean and unclean, holy and common. Embedding these laws here in the middle of chapter 22 is a way of saying that Israel's consciousness that they are the Lord's people, his holy people, was to be seen in all areas of life. Just as our consciousness that we're the Lord's holy people should be seen in all areas of life. And in particular in Deuteronomy 22, it's saying that Israel's holiness has to be seen in how they treat their neighbour and in how they conduct themselves in the intimate relationship that's at the core of family life, the relationship between a man and a woman. So, firstly, Deuteronomy 22 tells us that holy people are to be good neighbours. They're to be people who protect and preserve their neighbour's property. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. 
You see, in keeping the, the, the ten words, the, the ten major principles of, of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, in living as God's covenant people, it's actually not enough just say not to steal or not to covet. Israel are called to actively help their neighbour to retain what is theirs. So it's not finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Uh, we are to return and restore what we belong to others. That's what a good neighbour does. And you notice three times it says, do not ignore. And that's actually the key idea. And it's stressed because we all find it easy to ignore, to say that really what's going on there is none of my business. You know, we say, oh, I don't have time to chase her up about a purse or a cardigan or glasses or, or we think in our minds, excusing ourselves, oh, if he can't be bothered to look after his own stuff, why should I? If he or she didn't check the air in their spare tyre before they set off, why should I be expected to waste my time by driving them back to the garage? Right? It's actually easy to ignore, to act as if we have no responsibility to help. And yet, when it's us, generosity of time and effort to get our stuff back, you know, that wallet we left on the train or the camera and phone we left in the restaurant is so appreciated, isn't it? Holiness is seen in the love that takes the time and effort to help our neighbours keep what the Lord has given them. And holiness is seen in the love that preserves the life-sustaining fruitfulness of our neighbours' environment. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Now there's both a sensibility and a utility in this command. In relation to sacrificial animals, Israel had already been forbidden to kill a mother and her young on the same day. There was actually be, to be respect for the parental relationship, a, a respect for the relationship that gives life even where we are dependent on the death of others to live their death for our food. But this command also prioritises long-term sustainability over short-term gain. If the mother lives, well, there can be continuing production of offspring. If the mother's taken, then the eggs or the young will die as well. This respect and rejection of greed was tied to enjoyment of continuing fruitfulness, that it may go well with you in the land, not just for the individual, but for Israel as a society. So where society licenses short-term gain that's based on taking away not just the fruit, but the source of fruitfulness, it suffers because it destroys the very basis of its continuing sustainability. There's no love of neighbour in that. We are good neighbours, where we steward the productive resources of a country so that they can continue to sustain life. And that stewarding is to happen individually, in our own decisions about what we take and what we use for ourselves, and collectively. Now, making wise collective decisions in an interconnected ecology is much more complex, and it actually does depend on knowledge. And so we're not going to really go into it. But the principle for God's people is actually very clear. 
good neighbours steward the resources of our environment to sustain fruitfulness. And holy people are good neighbours by making sure that nothing they own endangers the life of their neighbour. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now in Palestine, people's flat roofs were the original outdoor room, and many of their homes would actually have two storeys as well as the flat roof, with in a sense uh, their livestock in the, in the bottom storey and then people living in the next storey up. And people would use their flat roofs to dry crops, store materials, sleep out on hot summer months. And so here the householder is told that they've got to make sure that people can't accidentally step off or roll off the roof by building a parapet around it. To not take steps to prevent a foreseeable hazard would be to bring blood guilt upon the householder to make him guilty of negligent manslaughter. And so if we're going to be holy people, we actually have to think through what we own. What steps have you taken to ensure it does not harm those who may use it? Is your car serviced? Are your electrical appliances safe? Is your pet controlled? When people work for you or on your place, do you insist on adequate safety, even when it will cost you a little more in neither time or money. Holy people should take the lead in this and do it willingly and not reluctantly. And as I say that, I convict myself uh, because you know I'm one of these people who perhaps find some of the OH&S requirements just a little burdensome and frustrating. Uh, but actually, I should repent. They're actually there to prevent harm, foreseeable harm. Holy people should be good neighbours. That's what the Lord's telling us, whether it's in looking after our neighbours' property, their environment or their lives. Why? Well, think of our holy God. He loves. Our Lord Jesus says he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, a merciful God. And so his people, being who are meant to become like him, his children, should show a thoughtful kindness in relating to all. And, and think of how believers in Jesus have become now the holy people of our holy God. It's because Jesus did not ignore our interests. He put them before his own, humbling himself, putting himself out to die on the cross for our sin. As John says, Believers in Jesus know love because we've been loved by Christ. Being the recipients of a love that's paid such a cost, we should love even when it puts us out, or especially where it puts us out. Being the people of the Holy God also includes having a distinctive sexual ethic, where we accept responsibility to keep sexual activity only for the relationship of a husband and wife in marriage and to ensure that the weaker, the more vulnerable partner in that relationship is protected. And those are the principles that are actually embodied in the cases that follow in verses 13 to 30 and it's, uh, they are set out there on your outline. 
Now, some may find these verses difficult to hear. Uh, perhaps that's because it seems so far removed from the sexual ethic of our society or because of the apparent expectations, say, that the hated woman of verses 13 to 19 should stay with the man who slandered her or in verses 28 to 29 that the girl who's not betrothed should marry her assailant. Now that is strange and uncomfortable, but I hope at the end you'll see in that this society, those are prescriptions which are designed to provide protection to the woman, not to disempower her or oppress her. But for others, the whole question of what to do with sexual violence in a society is too difficult to consider because of your own experience of that violence. If that's the case, I am grieved that your life has been marred by that sin. As you'll hear, God's word has no sympathy for the perpetrators of sexual violence. And if what I say today stirs up things you want to talk about, I'm happy to listen or to arrange for you to talk with one of the older women in the congregation, and talking is sometimes helpful. Now, to understand the cases presented here, and especially the remedies applied, there are four things that will actually help you to know beforehand as you come to think about them. So firstly, we have to understand the place of the family in Israelite life. The family is the fundamental unit of Israelite society. It was the place of instruction in the covenant, the context in which the blessing of being in the covenant was experienced through the possession of the land, the family's inheritance, and the family was the means of transmission of membership of the covenant, of belonging to Israel, the people of God. The family mediated the covenant and covenant relationship from one generation to the next, and so ensured Israel continued as the people of God. And so the authority, the stability and the prosperity of the family was of central importance to the well-being and continuity of Israel as the Lord's people and of central importance to his purpose for them to be a people who showed that the Lord alone was God and that the blessed life was found in knowing him not in worshipping idols. So the first thing we have to see is the centrality of the family. Secondly, we actually need to understand the vulnerability of women in ancient agricultural societies like Israel, societies that are so different from us. Now George Athos in his commentary describes the situation of women in the ancient world in this way. There was no public education or widespread literacy no housing options, employment opportunities or social security. No police, charities, clubs or other social infrastructure that might allow women in the ancient world to live independently. This is why women and children were particularly vulnerable in the ancient world. They depended on being attached to a family unit headed by a man who could physically protect and provide for them. For a woman, this began with the household of her father. When she was of age to bear children, she would join the household of her husband and become firmly established within the family line by providing it with children. If she outlived her husband, she would hopefully join the household of one of her sons. Unlike today, therefore, 
bearing children was not merely a matter of personal choice for a woman. It was vital for her livelihood in a relatively undeveloped society. Now we may be and should be grateful that this is not our society, but it was Israel's reality and the context in which the law seeks to provide for and protect women. The third thing we need to understand is that in the Old Testament and in the New really, sexual sin is never considered a purely private matter. From the outset, the prohibition of adultery has been one of the foundational ten words, the Ten Commandments. Adultery is both destructive of family and social stability and completely alien to the Lord's character, for adultery is making a commitment and then breaking it, something the Lord never does. So being committed to being faithful in marriage, both man and woman, was an aspect of their relationship with the Lord, their King. Israel's distinctive sexual ethic was part of their commitment to being the Lord's people. So, for example, the penalty for adultery was not left to the husband as it was in surrounding societies. It was given by the Lord and to be administered by the judges, not the husband, to purge evil from Israel to maintain Israel as the people amongst whom the Holy God could dwell. And fourthly, we have to recognise that what we have in verses 13 to 30 is not an exhaustive uh, body of proscriptive laws. What we have here is actually pertinent illustrative cases, examples of how to deal with sexual sins to be read in the light of the rest of the law. They give principles that Israel, through its judges, can apply to similar but perhaps less or more extreme situations. They give guidance. Uh, now, they are connected, these cases, moving from the accusation of immorality before marriage to adultery, then the analogous case of the betrothed woman in verses 23 to 24, to dealing with a case of sexual violence that may appear to be related to the previous cases of adultery, but which is, verses 25 to 27, very distinct. And then verses 28 to 29, a similar case, but relating to a girl who's not betrothed. And finally, the only prescriptive law in verses 13 to 30, uh, that one addressing incest. So the first set of cases in verses 13 to 21 has to do with the situation where a husband accuses his new wife of unfaithfulness prior to marriage. Virginity is an issue because if the woman is not a virgin, there could be doubts about who was the father of the child and therefore who was entitled to the family inheritance. Promiscuity before marriage threatened to destabilise families, disrupt inheritance and erode trust by people getting married under false pretences. But while there's a clear expectation, as we see at the end in verses 20 to 21, that women be virgins when they marry for the first time, reinforcing the consistent position of God's word in both the New Testament and Old Testament that sex for both men and women is to only be practised in marriage between a man and a woman, the way the case is presented suggests that here the main concern is protecting a new wife 
whose husband is seeking to callously get rid of her by making a false accusation. That's where most of the text gives its attention. And now the accusation, we're told, originates in his hatred of her and the cause of that hatred is not specified. And what we see here is that suspicion alone, the husband's suspicion alone, is not enough. There must be facts. And in this case, the charge can be refuted by the father producing what's called the evidence of her virginity, presumably a sheet or garment with bloodstains indicating that the marriage had been consummated. Now, that all seems very foreign to us, but such a practice is known over history in a number of cultures. And that uh, garment would actually be entrusted to the parents of the bride. Now, it doesn't say that this is the only admissible evidence, but it is an example of a wider principle that accusations need proof. And equally so, we have to see that the lack of this uh, garment is not sufficient to establish a charge because the law has already said in chapter 17 and chapter 19 that capital crimes require the evidence of two or three witnesses. But this is the most readily available proof to disprove the charge. Now what the two cases establish is that those marrying for the first time should be virgins that accusations must be sustained by evidence and that false accusations are serious, as seen from the penalty imposed by the elders in verses 18 to 19. But is it severe enough? You see, the law has said that when, back in chapter 19, that when someone makes a false accusation, the false accuser should receive the punishment he had tried to inflict on the one he was accusing. The punishment for the young woman, if the charge was proven, if the suspicion was believed, would be death. So why is the accuser only whipped and fined twice the normal amount given to a bride's father? And why is it thought satisfactory that a wife should continue with someone who hates her, who can never now divorce her? Now, that same question we'll feel even more acutely when we come to verses 28 to 29, where the woman becomes the wife of her assailant. Well, that requirement, you know, that she stays wife and never be divorced, is not seeking to punish the woman, but to provide for her long-term security. There was no alternate source of economic security than belonging to a household. Now she belongs permanently to her husband's household who must provide for her. And with that provision comes the possibility of children and longer term security, which she would not have if she returned to her father's household. The alternative, executing her husband, would leave her in the vulnerable position of being a widow and probably with a cloud over her reputation even though she had been vindicated. And so this is a provision made for the security of the woman. Now the next two cases deal with adultery. Adultery is condemned in the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And as I've said, unlike in the surrounding cultures where the punishment was left to the husband, 
And unlike in our society where adultery is seen as shameful but often excused as understandable, a purely private matter between husband and wife attracting no legal penalty, adultery is seen as a crime against the Lord, a repudiation of his rule. You see, adultery is betrayal. And in Israel it wasn't just a betrayal of the other spouse. It's actually a betrayal of the Lord who had entrusted the transmission of his covenant to parents whom he had commanded to be honoured. And in that covenant, faithfulness was fundamental. And with adultery, those entrusted with the transmission of the covenant were actually repudiating its fundamental requirement, that of faithfulness and steadfast love. It's direct rebellion against the law. And so it attracts the death penalty where proven. And that penalty is applied equally to the man and the woman, for this relationship is consensual. And in verses 23 to 24, the penalty for adultery is extended to consensual sex between a man and a betrothed woman. If there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbour's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, just as in verse uh, 22. Now, this example is given... Uh, for while the betrothal was a public commitment legally binding on both parties, the betrothed woman was not yet living under her husband's roof, nor had the marriage been celebrated. This example clarifies that the legal status of the betrothed is that of wife. And what's been considered here is, a, is consensual sex, between a betrothed woman and a man who is not her betrothed husband. It's consensual because there is no mention of force here. And screaming, crying for help, or its absence, is actually used as a sign of consent or lack of consent. There may, of course, be other ways of establishing that the sex was not consensual, uh, than crying for help. And there might be circumstances where a woman, even in the city, could not cry for help. But what these verses are doing is establishing the principle that consensual sex between a man and a betrothed woman is to be reckoned as adultery and attract the penalty for adultery. Now that is in distinction from the next case. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offence punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbour, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Here there is no consent. And the young woman is the victim of sexual violence. The man seizes her. This is rape. Now notice there is a presumption of innocence given to the young woman. And she is not blamed in any way for what happened to her. It's not suggested she's responsible because she was wearing the wrong clothes or walking where she should not have been. There's not even, that thought does not arise. All the blame 
and all the punishment is borne by the man. In fact, they have this case to make it clear that the analogy is not in this case with the laws concerning adultery. No, the analogy is with the laws relating to murder. You see, this is violence, cruel violence, without justification. And the assumption is that, hard as it may be, traumatised as she is, uh, the young woman will continue as she was, betrothed. Sexual violence should not rob her of her place in her society or of her future. And that's an expectation that places a responsibility, a large responsibility on her betrothed to do what a husband in Israel should do, and that is nurture and provide. Now, her betrothed state is the significant difference uh, from, the next, uh, from the next case, which is also a case of sexual violence. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now here we are shocked that the assailant, rather than being executed, is allowed to live and take the young woman as his wife. Now three comments. Firstly, the location is not specified and secondly, the term for seize is different from the term used in verse 25, capable of a much wider range of physical interactions. Now, both those features suggest that the interest is not, on the, in a sense, on the circumstances of the assault. No, the interest is in the fact that they have found on the publicly changed circumstances of the young woman, that she is known now to be no longer a virgin. And this leads to the third comment. In this case, the penalty is changed to provide for the young woman who is not betrothed, and in that society now may never be able to be engaged and married. To make sure that economic destitution is not added to the sexual assault, the man must pay the father the bridal gift and take her for his wife and never divorce her. Note, by the way, it's not said that she can't refuse him, but he can never divorce her if she goes into the marriage. And this is to ensure her future, that the man has, in a sense, to make economic compensation for her for the extent of her life. Now, while we with the options for support and economic independence that are available to us in our society, may think this is unsatisfactory. The focus is on the woman and providing for her as best as possible in that society and providing for her throughout the rest of her life. And finally, in the last verse, a man is prohibited from taking his father's wife. That's not talking about his mother but his stepmother or a father's concubine, a case that has a parallel in 1 Corinthians 5. Now this is seen as a sin against his father in usurping the father's place and creating relationship confusion within the family and across generations. 
So let's summarise what we learn about how a holy people are to conduct themselves in relation to sex from Deuteronomy 22. Well, firstly, even though in the narrative of the Old Testament we have men behaving badly, like David with Bathsheba or Amnon with Tabor, a series of cases, what we see is that in the law, in the ideal, there is no licence for male sexual immorality. The sexual relationship for both men and women is expected to be expressed only in marriage in the context of a committed family relationship. Consensual sexual relationships outside marriage are condemned and both men and women are held accountable. Male sexual violence is never condoned or excused, but it's actually equated with murder. And male selfishness that seeks to use the law to be rid of a hated wife is restrained. So both sexual immorality and sexual violence are condemned, and by the law's condemnation they are restrained in Israel. What the law seeks to protect is the future and well-being of the less physically and economically powerful of the abused woman. In so doing, what it's actually promoting is male self-control and the idea that with power and privilege comes the responsibility of looking after and promoting the well-being of those who are less powerful. So holy people, people who are called to be God's own people, have to live sexually self-controlled lives and then not to use their power and privilege to exploit the weak to fulfil their own desires. Now that's true in the Old Testament. It is even more true for believers in Jesus. The New Testament in many places, say Mark 7 or 1 Thessalonians for many others and they're listed in the transcript, endorses the teaching of the Old Testament that sexual activity is to find expression only in the married relationship of a man to a woman. And it actually anchors that teaching in creation. All sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman is condemned as sexual immorality and condemned by our Lord in Mark 7. Yet God's grace, says Paul in Titus, trains and teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. That's the way God's holy people are to live now. You see, in our Lord Jesus, we don't have someone who used his power and authority to promote his own interests and pleasure. Rather, we have one who denied himself to do his Father's will, who sought the interests of others above his own, and though greater than all, actually served. So the Lord Jesus is faithful to his bride, and he sacrifices himself for her well-being. He is exactly the opposite of someone who selfishly exploits his power and privilege to obtain sexual advantage, of someone who is driven by desire to be unfaithful to his relationship, unfaithful to his relationship with his heavenly Father, and God's people now should be like our Lord. 
we should be like him. So holy people honour the marriages of others and they promote the welfare of others and their society by making sure sex finds its place in a secure, committed, lifelong relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And we should all be very clear on that in a society that has a very different sexual ethic. But it is grace that teaches us to embrace this self-controlled life. We come to our holy calling, every one of us, as those who have been forgiven. Just as there may be some amongst us who have been wronged by the desire and violence of others, and who I hope are finding healing and comfort and hope in the love of their Saviour, who gave himself to cleanse his people and to join them to himself forever, so that they are always secure. Just as there are some who have been wronged, so there may well be some here who are conscious that they have wronged others in this area of sex and who are conscious of that wrong and of the way God thinks about it are now shamed and grieved by their sin. If that is you, come and talk. There was forgiveness even for David, that adulterer, when he confessed his sin. And Jesus is the saviour of sinners, even those who betray others and betray their relationship to the Lord by sexual immorality. So together, sinners and sinned against, knowing we have been redeemed, redeemed to be Christ's own people, we ought to live as that people who wait for our blessed hope, being good neighbours, good neighbours to all, good neighbours because we live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present to the glory of our Saviour. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, some things are hard to think about and sometimes uh, we find uh, your standards, while so clear, so difficult. Uh, we pray in your mercy that through the work of your Spirit we would be people who can live those godly, self-controlled and upright lives who don't wrong others by giving in to sexual desire outside of marriage. And gracious Father, we pray for those who have been wronged by others in this way. Now, Father, we do pray that they would know your peace and that they would know the security of your love that can keep them always and use even the wrongs done by others for the good of his people. And gracious Father, we pray that where we know we have wronged others, we have not loved them as they should have been loved. Uh, we pray that you would turn our hearts to your Son who has loved us and given himself for us so that we can be forgiven, cleansed and transformed by your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.